You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses, resources and a wonderfully supportive writing community. Today I'm bringing you one of our in-between episodes, where we listen to a story session, just you, me and our guest author of the week. And usually at this point, I tell you that we're without my co-host, Alison Tate, but this week... I've chosen Alison's latest book, The Wolf's Howl by A.L. Tate. So although she's not recording this intro with me, you'll still get to hear her lovely voice. So in our story sessions, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, read by the author or someone else fabulous, but usually by the author. And so today you get to hear Alison herself reading the first chapter of her latest novel, The Wolf's Howl. And because she's such a passionate member of the writing community, Alison has also given us some insight into the inspiration behind this story. Here is the blurb so you get an idea of what the book is about. A secret mission, a missing cook, a hostile landscape, a mystery to unravel. Maven and Reeve find themselves at the far-flung and gloomy Glorn Castle while Sir Garrick secretly searches for supporters of the rebellion. But when a cook goes missing and the Earl's personal guards take more than a passing interest in the disappearance, danger looms and the potential for discovery grows. Can Maven and Reeve solve the mystery or will they be unmasked and sentenced with treason? And now here is A.L. Tate reading the first chapter of The Wolf's Howl. Hi, I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, and I am, of course, co-host of the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast. But today I'm actually here in my strict A.L. Tate mode um, to read you the first chapter of The Wolf's Howl, which is the second in my Maven and Reeve mystery series. Now, The Wolf's Howl was inspired by a few different things, um, and it's often only when you look back that you actually understand where the inspiration for various uh, ideas come from. It is the second in a series. It is um, a standalone mystery, uh, but it is a continuation of the world and the characters that we first met in The Firestar, which was the first in the Maven and Reef mystery series, uh, which was released in 2020. And if you'd like to hear me uh, read the first chapter of the Firestar, you can hear it in episode 356. Um, But in book two of The Wolf's Howl, Maven and Reeve uh, find themselves in the far-flung Fife of Glorn. They have left the confines of Renart Castle where they first met and Glorn is a fairly bleak and isolated place. Um, It is on a very windswept moor and in fact The Wolf's Howl is the name of an icy fierce howling wind that blows up across the Fife and through Glorn Castle um, at various times of the year. Uh, The residents call it the howl Um, and it's an interesting place Glorn because when you start to think about how wind affects you it affects everything from your fashion. Um, The women of Glorn tie their hair back uh, in a very low bun that's very close so it's not blowing around their heads all the time. Their skirts are not full. They are kind of close down to their body for the same reason so that the wind does not get underneath them. Um, So it affects that. It affects how people relate to the outside world. It's a very internal world at Glorn. And I think that the isolation and that internal aspect of their lives 
probably came out of 2020 itself. It came out of the isolation and the uncertainty that I think we were all feeling in 2020. And again, this is not a conscious thing, but as I was creating this world and when I look back on it now, I can see how, you know, an internal world where we were all staying indoors for the most part, we were kind of avoiding each other, um, sort of it, it, it changes and affects the relationships that you have with other people. Now, the wind in question, the wolf's howl, uh, came from the fact that I live on the south coast of New South Wales and every August, it's a thing, we get what we call the August winds and they blow up out of the west and they are absolutely appalling. They are strong. Everyone is annoyed every time you step outside the door and there is that sense when you come back inside of, of a sanctuary because you're outside, you know, you're not outside in this biting wind that um, it's just annoying. It's one of those things because you look outside and the day is beautiful and you step outside and you are instantly annoyed by the wind. So those are a couple of things that fed into the world of um, the wolf's howl. Um, building on top of the characters that I had created uh, Maven and Reeve and also the Beach Circle, uh, the Secret Society of Women and Girls uh, that were we first met, sort of met in the Firestar. Um, and it's an interesting thing to follow two characters into a brand new story and into a brand new, um, you know, uh, unknown place for them because you really get to see how people go about things. And, of course, Reeve is someone who considers himself to be fairly socially, um, socially aware and socially... Uh, is there such a word as ept as opposed to inept? Because he's the kind of guy who can pretty much, you know, work his way through uh, any situation. He's been on his own since he was seven. He was a page. He's been sent off to live in another castle um, at that age. He has had to work out how to manage by himself. And so in doing that, he has learned the politics of the world in which he lives. Um, Maven is a slightly different set, a cup of tea, so to speak. She, uh, grew up a lady uh, until she was around 10 and then her father lost everything and she has become a companion to Lady Cassandra. And we kind of start to see in uh, in the Firestar, we see the impact of that on her. She's a very resourceful girl. You know, she's learned to manage in a way um, that she would probably not have had to had she sort of stayed in the cosseted life that she was meant for. So she has learned to manage, but she's also very, very um, suffocated by the world in which she lives and she's desperate to get out. But she has a very strong sense of loyalty and that loyalty to Lady Cassandra keeps her with her for this second book and also as an ongoing thing because she's um, she's a very loyal person and Lady Cassandra has looked after her and so she feels she needs to also look after Lady Cassandra. So the two books can be read uh, entirely separately, uh, but, of course, they also do build on each other. And to give you a sense, um, so the other thing about them is that the books are written in alternate uh, points of view. So all of Maven's sections are written in first person uh, and all of Reeve's sections are written in third person. So it kind of reflects their their, their ways in their, their places in the world. Uh, Maven's world is very closed. Uh, she is a, a maidservant. She is in a world where uh, women and girls are not expected to read or write. They are not expected to do much beyond the very narrow confines of what society has has, you know, designated for them, which is another reason that she feels so constrained by it. Reeves' world, on the other hand, is much larger. He has a bigger, uh, a bigger world in which to move just simply for the fact that he 
is A, a male, and B, he is a squire on his way to becoming a knight. He's in a very privileged position. Um, and so we get to see the world through these two different sets of uh, perspectives and two different sets of eyes. We get to be in the shoes of two different characters moving in the same place. Um, and as a writer, that is a brilliant thing uh, to be able to explore a world in those two different ways. And I very much enjoyed uh, going from each perspective to the other to learn uh, more about the world and more about the characters. Anyway, enough from me. I'm going to now read you the first chapter of The Wolf's Howl. And this first chapter is all in Maven's uh, point of view. So it's all um, from her perspective. Uh, we move into to Reeve's perspective as of uh, chapter two. Uh, so there are two different perspectives, but we're getting just the, the just Maven's point of view in this opening chapter. Chapter one. For a squire of noted charm and alleged cleverness, Reeve of Nord is displaying neither of those traits today. As he rides past my window yet again, waving and grinning, flaunting his freedom and independence, it is all I can do not to stick out my tongue and cross my eyes at him. But of course I do not. Ladies must be demure. And there are five other ladies squashed into this hot, airless carriage, three of whom are tittering at Reeve's antics, one of whom is staring out the other window at her new husband, Sir Garrick Sharp, and one one who sits opposite me and watches my every move from beneath dark, heavy lashes. Anise reminds me of the sleek ginger cat that prowls the kitchens of Renart Castle, watching and waiting for the tiny field mice who scamper in and risk all for a skerrick of flour. Few of them ever taste it, scooped up in seconds by sharp claws and carried off by the cat to be toyed with until they die. If anyone knew that I was comparing the Earl of Buckthorn's daughter to a sadistic cat, my place as companion to Lady Cassandra, Anissa's own cousin, would be in jeopardy. But as yet, only jesters and charlatans lay claim to reading minds, and so my secrets are safe, a fortunate thing for many. To avoid looking at Anise, however, I must look out the window, which means I must watch Reeve prancing about on Earl Buckthorn's enormous black destria, his stubbly blonde hair gleaming in the golden afternoon sunlight, Envy crashes through me, and in an effort to keep a blank expression on my face, I summon up my mother's voice in my mind. Maven, young ladies do not ride astride their horses. Maven, young ladies are safe inside the confines of a carriage. Maven, young ladies are not allowed to have fun. She would never have said the last, of course, not even at the height of her reign as Lady Sybil of Aramore, but she thought it then, and I have no doubt that even now, as plain Sybil, genteel companion to Lady Fenlon, she thinks it still. Thinking of my mother has had the required effect, though, and I have no desire to crack even the hint of a smile at Reeve's antics. Reeve, however, is determined to provoke a reaction from me, knowing better than anyone how utterly and horribly confined I feel, stuffed inside this airless carriage with Lady Cassandra, a niece, and three of Anissa's interchangeable friends. Besieged and beset by a thousand whispered exchanges and giggles, I am all but buried under yards of silk and satin skirts in the colours of the rainbow. My serviceable brown dress disappears into the carriage's burnished leather upholstery and I have a splitting headache, my nostrils assaulted by the aggressive wafts of lavender, rose and gardenia Anissa's coterie seems to bathe in every morning. The only thing that has kept me sane over the long hours of travel to Harding Manor are occasional sympathetic looks from my Lady Cassandra, but they are few and far between. She is far too enamoured with her view of Sir Garrick to pay much attention to anyone else in the carriage." That said, I am half grateful that Cassandra is distracted. Anissa's calculating gaze misses nothing, and I don't want to inadvertently reveal too much. 
It suits me to be overlooked and for my friendship with Anissa's cousin to remain hidden beneath my role as Cassandra's servant. And so the hours roll on, every sway and creak of the carriage taking us further from Renart Castle towards Harding Manor, where we will rest for tonight and leave Anise and her friends behind when we head much further north on the morrow. I allow myself a tiny smile at the thought. I hope you have brought your warmest, warmest kirtle with you, cousin. I believe there is no such thing as a nice day in Glorn, Anise says, drawing Cassandra's attention from the window. I am glad to be going no further than Harding. Thank you for your concern, cousin, Cassandra says with a polite smile. Indeed, I am well stocked with layers of warmth. I even have several pairs of fine Taliban gloves. Taliban gloves, Anise says, her shock evident. So Garrick must like you a great deal to have paid for those. Cassandra's gaze slides to the carriage window once more. It seems he does. Maven will show you. I stand bracing my feet so that I can rock back and forth in the moving carriage without falling into Anissa's lap and retrieve the small trunk above my head, fishing out two pairs of impossibly light and warm knitted gloves, one pair in black, one in a blue that reminds me of spring, I hand them to Cassandra. She passes one glove to each of the other girls who immediately ooh and ah, even Anise, over the intricate patterns knitted into each glove. As I drop back into my seat, the trunk on my lap, I am reminded of a late night in my father's solar, me on one side of the desk, he leaning in from the other, as he told me, in hushed tones, stories from the last kingdom wars. For a moment, I can hear again the note of admiration in my father's voice as he explained the different ways in which the rebels had sent coded messages to each other. One way was to use different patterns of knitting, adding rows to scarves that had crisscrossed the kingdom, wrapped around the throats of innocent-looking women and children, right under the noses of the other side. Looking at Cassandra's gloves, I wonder whether my father, or anyone else for that matter, even remembers that story. Not that it would be of any use to me. Knitting is not a skill I've ever acquired. Perhaps because he knew I had not the patience to learn handicrafts, my father had also shown me how a book code works and we had used it to send messages to each other before a sudden wave of homesickness washes over me and I swallow it down, surprised by the pain even after five years. Every time I think I am finished with the horror of my father's betrayal and my mother's rejection, a tiny reminder shows up to needle me once more. To stave it off, I focus on remembering the book code, a simple but effective way in which to hide a message. All it took was two people, one book, and a lot of patience. The person sending the message nominated the book and then a page number. The message was created by choosing the words one needed from that page. Every word was given a number and the chosen numbers listed in order to create the message. Simple, but such fun when you're 10 years old and exchanging secret messages with the person you love best in the whole world. A sudden jolt pricks my reverie with a bang and Anise and her friends all shriek as one. Ignoring them, I focus on Reeve, who is no longer looking so carefree. His huge horse has spooked at the sound of the carriage wheel hitting a deep pothole and the sight of Reeve fighting to bring the skittish beast under control widens my tiny smile into a full-fledged grin. The grin lasts only until another jolt rocks the carriage and I hear the coachman swear in a most ungenteel fashion that carries over the ear-piercing, scraping sound rising from beneath my feet. As the carriage shudders to a halt, thundering hooves rocket past and the coachman swears again as the four horses hauling us all stamp and neigh. We're going to die, Anissa's friend Honora looks as though she's about to swoon. Why should we die now, Cassandra asks, her voice low and calm, as though dealing with a panicked hound, or at a stop? 
It must be a bandit, Honora quavers, big blue eyes full of tears as she twists a blonde ringlet around and around her finger. I can't look away as the fingertip turns pink from the pressure and I wonder if it's possible it might fall off with enough time. It's not a bandit, Cassandra says, reaching over to pat the other girl's hand. So Garrick is talking to the coachman just over there. He'd hardly be doing that if we were under attack. He might, Anissa's sly, sly voice inserts, if he's in on the hold-up. I daren't look at Cassandra, knowing that I am the lowliest person in this carriage, but I can feel her stiffen beside me. Cousin, you jest, Cassandra says with a tight smile, but I can see her nails digging into her palms as she forces herself to remain calm. Anise is the daughter of the Earl of Buckthorn, and Cassandra merely the fourth daughter of the Earl's brother-in-law and married to a knight in his service. It will not help Cassandra to get on the bad side of Anise, and from what I have witnessed, there are a few good sides to Anise. We all turn to Anise to see where the exchange will go next. One beat, then two go by, before Anise tosses one long coppery braid over her shoulder and takes Honora's hand. Indeed, I jest, Anise says with a brittle giggle. How could anyone imagine that the Knight Protector of Renart Castle would ever consort with bandits? But as she says this, her eyes find mine, and her gaze holds just a fraction too long. Fortunately, a light rap on the carriage door breaks the polite deadlock, and the door swings open to reveal Sir Garrick. My ladies, he says, bowing to us all though in reality his attention is fixed on Cassandra, who blushes a, a fetching shade of rose pink. It seems the carriage wheel has been damaged and is unfit for further travel. I must ask you to alight now. Ladies, give Maven the gloves and then we'll get out, says Cassandra. Anise and her friends reluctantly peel off the gloves and I fold them back into the trunk, buckling it up. I gather my skirts, preparing to step down from the carriage, but Anise sticks out one delicate foot, almost tripping me over. I will not alight and ruin my new shoes, she says, showing Sir Garrick the pale pink kid slipper laced up her ankle with a velvet ribbon a shade or two darker. A tiny wrinkle appears between Sir Garrick's dark brows, but he is not L. Buckthorn's knight protector for nothing. My lady's slipper is quite lovely, he says, and I can almost see his mind whirring behind his polite expression, but the coachman will be unable to fix the carriage unless we unpack it. Anise straightens, staring down her fine nose at Sir Garrick, I am not baggage to be unpacked. She sniffs, placing her hands just so in her lap with haughty precision. I am the Earl of Buckthorn's only daughter, and I will not be discarded on the side of a dusty road at the pleasure of a mere coachman. I want to roll my eyes as she split, spits out the last word, thinking that baggage is exactly what she is. But over the past week, Anise has taken it upon herself to ensure that I know my place in the hierarchy at Renard Castle. My quiet, lowly place. Reeve still cannot understand Anissa's malevolence towards me. But you saved her from a disastrous marriage and asked nothing in return, he repeats, bewildered almost daily. She should be grateful. Repeating does not make a thing so, as I have explained to him over and over. Anise is embarrassed and I am a constant reminder of that weak, silly moment when she found herself almost betrothed to the opportunistic, never will be a knight, Brantley. She wants me gone. But to get me gone, she has to get past Cassandra, and I am secure in my lady's affection. How long must we wait, we wait for the wheel, Cassandra intervenes now. An hour or two, perhaps more, Sir Garrick answers, appearing to brace himself for Anissa's response. Then I'll not move, Anissa hisses. My complexion will be quite ruined by all that sunshine. I study her face, which, it has to be said, is lovely. Even at 16, her pale skin is not marred by a single freckle, though her copper hair marks her as one prone to the kiss of the sun. Cassandra sighs. 
It does seem a long time to stand about in the dust, she says to Sir Garrick, reaching over at me to place a hand on his arm. Is there no other way? As Sir Garrick considers her request, weighing up the pros and cons of insisting that the ladies alight, a windswept reeve rides up behind him, his horse blowing hard. It's not far to Harding Manor from here, Reeve says. No more than 20 minutes ride without the carriage. Could we not each take a lady up on our horses? They'll arrive in time for a late luncheon and we can send help to fix the wheel. Reeve's sensible suggestion is greeted with shrieks from Honora and her friends. We could never do that, Honora breathes, while the other two, I do wish I'd been properly introduced so that I could remember their names, giggle. Imagine what people would say. But Anise looks at Reeve and then at me before responding. I would rather a few minutes on horseback than hours standing in the sun, she says, before pausing theatrically. But Sir Garrick, there are only five horses and six of us. Sir Garrick is so surprised by her acquiescence to Reeve's suggestion that he says nothing. So Anise speaks again. So you would take my cousin Cassandra, your beloved. I would need to ride with Reeve, your trusted squire. And Honora, Faith and Thora would have to arrive at the same time as me to ensure I am properly chaperoned and looking my best for Mama. So I am to be dumped on the side of the road with the ancient coachman to wait who knows how long for help. Cassandra can hardly protest. After all, which of the delicate flowers that surround Anise would she sacrifice to include me? Would I even want her to do so? I'm happy to stay behind, Sir Garrick, I say, keeping my voice even to avoid revealing my thoughts to Anise. Give me a moment or two to fix my lady Cassandra's hair for riding, and then I will join you all later once the carriage is mended. Oh, don't worry about that, says Anise, moving to alight from the carriage, all her concern for her kid's slippers apparently forgotten in her rush to get up on that horse with Reeve and gloat. Mama has any number of maids capable of fixing my cousin's hair once we arrive. I suck in a deep breath at the slight. Maven will do it, says Cassandra, her hand once again on my arm to calm me. She has many gifts, hair being just one of them. Anise wrinkles her nose, but I am mollified by the words. My position as Cassandra's companion has been a saviour to me, and I treasure our special bond. I have told Reeve on more than one occasion that I am careful never to forget my place, knowing that I remain a servant, and to most people one maid is interchangeable with another. But the truth is that there are times when it is just Cassandra and I that I can imagine us to be friends. Anise, I fear, knows it and takes every opportunity to remind me that while I was once Lady Maven of Aramore, those days are gone and companions can be replaced while cousins are for life. I follow the tittering girls through the door and turn to help Cassandra, but Sir Garrick is one step ahead of me as he places both hands around her tiny waist and lightly swings her to the ground. Come, my love, he says, let's get you settled. Cassandra turns to me. Will you braid my hair, Maven? I think that's the most sensible option. Wait a moment, says Sir Garrick, as I move towards her. He disappears to the back of the carriage and returns, lugging a heavy trunk. Here, he says, dropping it in the dust. Sit here, my love. It will be easier. Cassandra sits and I bury my hands in her luxuriant dark hair, removing the hairpins before fighting to braid the thick tresses and bring some semblance of control. Within minutes, she looks neat and tidy, and I slip the hairpins into the pocket of my skirt as I move to stand in front of her. You'll be all right, won't you? Cassandra whispers as I make a show of choosing the perfect curls to pull from the braid to frame her face. You won't be too far behind, and I think the coachman is to be trusted. I hide a smile at her worried expression. I'll be fine, my lady, I whisper back. To be honest, I will enjoy the break from our company. Cassandra grimaces. At least we have company only for one night, she says. I think Anise will be less... Anise, when she is in the presence of her mother, and we move on to Glorne Castle tomorrow without her. 
I bite my lip and my tongue, unwilling to share my thoughts on her cousin. Although Cassandra is not a fan of the girl either, they are still kin. As for the mission that takes us to Glorn Castle, neither of us should be even mentioning that out here in the open. I look forward to seeing Lady Rosman again, I say instead, gently pinching Cassandra's cheeks to bring a little colour into them, before brushing non-existent dust from her shoulder. It has been many years. I have but one clear memory of the good lady. I was only nine or ten the last time I saw her, at the wedding of a distant relative. But I remember that my mother was half in awe of Lady Rosman, half disparaging. She chooses to live entirely apart from her husband, I overheard my mother tell my older sisters in the carriage on the way home. Scandalous. I sometimes wonder now if, given half a chance, my mother would not have made the same choice regarding living arrangements, particularly knowing how things turned out for our family. Had my mother had her own residence, would we all still have a place to live rather than be scattered across Cartref? My father lives above the farrier's workshop in the small village he once owned as part of our estate, Aramore. The same estate has been lost to gam- gaming debts. My father, my powerful father reduced to poverty, my mother and sisters compelled into dependent lives as companions to women they once considered equals. And I was bartered to Cassandra's father, which turned out better than Cassandra or I expected. There you are, speak and span, I say to her now, trying to ignore, ignore Anissa's shrieks and giggles as Sir Garrick boosts her up onto Reeve's horse to sit side saddle before him. A sensible person would, of course, have jumped up behind Reeve, riding astride to make it easier for both horse and rider. But girls and women in Cartref do not ride astride, hampered as they are by full skirts and decorum. I'm going to have to sit across Garrick's lap, Cassandra mutters, watching the scene. It will not be for long and you will not mind, I tease. She's been married only a week, but I know how remarkably her attitude has changed towards Sir Garrick, the man she once thought to flee. Cassandra blushes. I would still rather ride myself. I nod, knowing her words to be true but then Anise will know you can ride astride and she will never let it go. You're right, Cassandra sighs, and I take her hand and pull her to her feet. Come, my lady, so Garrick awaits, and Reeve and Anise are already leaving. I'm sorry it must be this way, Maven, Cassandra says, clasping my forearm for a moment. I know this is not what you want. She's not speaking only of this moment on the road. Her plans to flee Sir Garrick before their wedding had included me. Had those plans not gone awry? Had the dazzling Firestar Ruby not disappeared? Had Cassandra not fallen in love with the man she was supposed to hate? Had all of those things not happened only a week ago, we would probably be across the water in Taliban right now, free to live our lives any way we choose. There is so much I could say and so little point to saying any of it, so I give her the reassurance she needs. It's fine, my lady, I'm fine. You made the right choice for both of us. With a last searching look, Cassandra turns away to where Sir Garrick awaits her with a smile that lights up his otherwise dark and brooding features. I do not watch as they ride off together, following in the hoofprints of Reeve, Anise and the others at a steady pace. Part of me thinks I should be relishing this opportunity. If I wanted to, this would be my chance to make a run for Taliban. I could simply disappear right now, pick up my skirts and run. Somewhere nearby there will be a village and in that village there will be a member of the beach circle and and I am 15 years old and I have no money and no plan. Even Myra, wild woman and a member of the beach circle near Renart Castle, told me to stay with Cassandra and Sir Garrick for now, reminding me how difficult it is for a woman to make her own way in the world. With Cassandra and the Firestar, I would have had a chance. But as it is, just a year or two, Myra had whispered to me, and then, then I will be gone. But that is a secret I keep to myself for now. Thinking of Myra, however, reminds me that others also have secrets. When I visited her cottage in the woods after the wedding, Reeve insisted on escorting me. 
He thinks I did not see Myra slip him a tiny pewter tincture bottle, but I do not miss much. If I gambled, which I do not, I would bet that bottle is now hidden beneath his tunic, hanging off the simple chain I sometimes glimpse when he bends forward to serve Sir Garrick at table. I will not ask Reeve about it, though it bothers me. If I am allowed to have my secrets, so is he. A loud curse interrupts my thoughts, and with one last lingering glance at the line of trees beyond the road, I follow the sound to the back of the carriage where the coachman is wrestling with the broken wheel. Now, good sir, I say, what can I do to help? He pauses, turning his wrinkled face to mine, a twinkle in the deep-set mud-brown eyes. Know much about carriage wheels, do you miss? I present to consider the question before squatting down on the road beside him, gathering my hem in an effort to keep it out of the dirt. Not a thing, I say, but I'm willing to learn, particularly if it gets me to my next meal sooner. The truth is that, as a bored little girl, when my, mo- my father was away from home and my mother wanted me to focus on embroidery or harpsichord practice, I often snuck away to watch Kevin, the wheelwright in Aramore, ply his craft, in the same way that I watched the blacksmith, the farrier, the candlemaker, the bowyer and the baker. And if I wasn't there, I was in the kitchen, soaking up the warmth of companionship as much as the heat from the always burning fire under the always bubbling pots. Before my father's downfall gambling and debt, Aramore was a thriving fiefdom, and I hid from my mother's attentions as often as I could. Fortunately, the craftsmen of Aramore never seemed to mind me sitting in the shadows of their workshops, and the cook never turned a lonely little girl away from her long kitchen table. The coachman stares at me now, then grunts, poking the centre of the wheel. They'll send someone for you before we get this fixed, I reckon. The outer pin is broken and the bushing is cracked. We'll need a replacement. He sits back on his heels before pushing himself up, knees popping and cracking as he stands. Sorry, miss, but there's nothing to do but wait, he says cheerfully, taking himself off to lie in a patch of soft green grass. I wait until his eyes are closed before leaning in to examine the the wheel hub. As much as I'm not eager to spend any more time with Anise than I must, I also have no desire to sit here for hours waiting to be rescued. I'm not generally one for waiting. I peer at the wheel hub, noting that the iron tube that always that allows the wheel to rotate is cracked, as the coachman said, but from what I can see, it does not seem to be broken through. This must be the bushing. The bigger problem seems to be that there is nothing to hold the wheel onto the axle, meaning that if we go any further, it will simply fall off. So how did Kevin affix the wheels? I lean in for a closer look, noticing that there are two tiny holes across the end of the axle. This must be where the missing pin was supposed to be. But surely if we could replace that, we might be able to slowly make our way to Harding Manor. Standing up, I dust my skirts off before approaching the dozing coachman. I need to ask some pointed questions without looking like I know what I'm talking about. Nobody likes a girl who asks questions, least of all a man who asks none. Good sir, I begin, clenching my fists into my pockets with the effort of keeping my voice light and friendly. I wonder if there might be a way for us to repair the carriage ourselves. He opens one eye. Why would we want to do that? The only thing waiting for us both at Harding Manor is more work. Take the break while you can. I stand for another moment, swallowing my impatience at being dismissed, but knowing that words will serve no purpose here, go back to examine the wheel. On one level, the coachman is right. There is no reason at all for me to fret about having to wait for help to come. A sensible servant would be relishing the enforced time to do absolutely nothing but enjoy the peace and quiet. But I was raised a lady and I cannot help railing against Denise's treatment of me, leaving me by the roadside to be collected like an unwanted parcel, particularly when I know how much it will be pleasing her to think she has bested me by riding off with Reeve. I scan the road beneath the wheel, but there is no sign of the pin. Standing, I wipe my hands on my skirt, thankful as ever that the heavy wool is the perfect brown to hide the dirt. 
and feel a long thin shape in my pocket. Drawing out the pins I'd withdrawn from Cassandra's hair, I study them. Fashioned from sturdy brass, they are about the length of my little finger and decorated with a curling scroll at one end. Squatting down beside the wheel again, I lay the length of one pin against the wheel hub. It's a little bit long, but... I glance over my shoulder. The problem of how to fix the wheel may be solved, but the real problem is lying behind me, snoring under his hat. In an ideal world, I would slot the hairpin into the end of the bushing and tell the coachman we can be on our way. But this is Cartref, and girls like me are not supposed to know how to do anything beyond fix hair, sew a fine seam, and fetch and carry. If I present the man with a repaired wheel, he's as likely to accuse me of witchcraft as thank me for my endeavours. As a sigh rises up from my boots, I slide Cassandra's hairpin into my own fawn brown hair and turn back towards the coachman, ready for a performance. I will play the curious and admiring maiden, leading him to come up with a solution for fixing the wheel with my hairpin without him recognising my input, all the while longing for a day or a place where such a performance was not necessary. Good sir, I begin. And that was chapter one from The Wolf's Howl, a Maven and Reeve mystery. Uh, if you would like to find out more about the Maven and Reeve mysteries, go to mavenandreeve.com and you will find uh, some more information, some teacher's notes and all sorts of other things about the Firestar and The Wolf's Howl. Thank you very much for listening to my reading today. Um, I very much enjoy bringing Maven's voice to life for you and I hope that you've enjoyed it too. This is such a great book, and although you can enjoy it on its own, I highly encourage you to read the first book in the series, The Firestar, as well. The Wolf's Howl by A.L. Tate is out now with Penguin, and if you'd love to write your own middle-grade adventure story, a great place to start is with our course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. Thanks for listening to this special episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre. Connect with us on social media at Writer Centre AU on Twitter and Instagram and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.